Ah, hello. I didn't see you there. You know, you really shouldn't be out this time of night. And in the middle of the woods, no less. What's that? You're looking for a storyteller? <laughs> well, luckily for you, I happen to be something of a storyteller myself. No, no, it's true. In fact, many of my stories are released to the public in roughly hour-long episodes. I'm Michael, by the way. Ah, I see you're a fan of the Me and the Boys podcast. You are a person of excellent taste. In any case, let us begin. My date started like any other. Hmm? You didn't want a dating story? I suppose that's fair. It hardly seems appropriate for a November night such as this. After all, November is widely known as the spookiest month. Very well. I shall relate to you another tale. But beware. This story may frighten you. It may make you twist and turn in your seat. I see. Don't say I didn't warn you. It was a dark and stormy night. Me and the boys were in Gerland's basement watching True Grit. The John Wayne one, that is. A cool wind blanketed the little town of Fairfield, Utah, and a thick fog set in. So thick that from Gerland's porch you couldn't even see the road. Let's back up one and a half centuries to 1858, October. Not yet called Fairfield, the settlement of Frogtown was home to military forces, currently preparing for what would be called the Utah War. Life was relatively calm for these soldiers at this time, until the sirens, that is. Now this is not the type of siren that wails away on a police car, no. These sirens are of a more mythical breed. The legend says that the sirens would pose as past lovers of men, drawing them in, and then killing them. The story goes as such. Private Dan Glasgow was a young fellow, not 20 years old at the time of the incident. While he was out gambling with some fellow soldiers one day, Dan glanced across the room noticing a young lady, roughly his age. Now, women at the stagecoach inn was something of a rarity itself, but Dan recognized her. The hair? The eyes? By Jove, it was Lucy Madden, Dan's old flame. Unsure of how to react, Dan kept his head down while stealing looks across the room. Things hadn't exactly ended in an ideal sense, as Dan had purchased a ring and was days away from sealing the deal with Lucy, when he was caught sharing a drink with another young lass at the saloon in his hometown of Rapid City, South Dakota. Whether or not the drink was romantic is besides the point. As the poor young Dan knelt down to tie his shoe, the wedding ring meant for another woman fell out of his coat pocket. He hadn't said a word, but the accusations against Dan that he attempted to marry another woman traveled fast, and a heartbroken Lucy believed them, and, well, who wouldn't? In a final effort to save the relationship, Dan pulled out the small box, knelt down intentionally this time, and uttered the words, Lucy Madden, I am only true to you. Will you marry me? When he opened the box, however, the ring was gone. To this day, its location is unknown. The humiliated Lucy burst out of the room, crying. Dan hadn't seen her since. She never wrote, and the word was that she went to Kansas City. But now, she was here. In the same state, in the same city, and in the same building as Dan. He began to sweat profusely. Much to his colleague's humor, of course, thinking it was because of the gambling. He felt as if he was going to vomit. 
Dan stumbled into the washroom, dousing his face into the cold water. And as he raised his head to view his reflection, there was Lucy over his shoulder, staring back at him. He whipped around. Dan? Is it really you? She said sweetly, to the bewilderment of the young private. Yes, Lucy. It, it is me. I missed you, Dan. I've been looking everywhere for you. You have? Dan was in shock as Lucy took his hand and guided him back out the door. We have so much to talk about, Dan. It will be sundown soon. Won't you take a walk with me? Anything, Lucy, anything. In elation at this point, Dan and Lucy strolled down Main Street, hand in hand. Dan said, Lucy, I thought I would never see you again. I'm so sorry about the ring. What ring? said Lucy, confused. Back when I wanted you to marry me, Lucy, the ring. Still confused, Lucy replied, But we are married, Dan. Lucy held out her hand, adorned with the same ring that Dan had lost three years ago. How is this possible? What do you mean, honey? replied Lucy. No, it, it was gone and you left. Is everything alright, Dan? You're speaking nonsense. This time, Lucy was a little more firm. And at this moment, Dan stopped walking. He looked around them, realizing they were now into a wide open field far down the hill from the rest of the town, and the sun had nearly set below the mountains. Lucy, none of that stuff happened. Where did you get the ring, and, and how did you know I was here? She only smiled a faint smile. Dan, you broke my heart that day. With that, her cold hand released his, and the young woman dissipated into the air. That's what Dan saw. His friends, however, reported that about every day for two months, at the same hour, Dan would start acting very strange. Wherever they were, he would start acting jittery, then suddenly excuse himself to the washroom, and awkwardly stagger out, speaking to nobody, as he exited the inn. One day, the boys became curious, however, and they followed him outside, and then they did it again and again. Every day, he would walk faster and faster, and just before the sunset, he would turn around and return as if nothing had happened. One day, however, late on a bitter October afternoon, a thick fog set into the valley, and the men waited in curiosity to see if Dan would still make his nightly walk into the unknown. First, he got all jittery at the table. Then he politely left the washroom, when he walked out and made for the door, however, the other soldiers stopped him. Dan, you can't go out there today. It is far too cold, and you will get lost. Get out of my way, he replied coldly. She won't wait for me. He pushed past, and as he reached the door, one of his friends tackled him to the ground. I can't let you go, Dan. Get off me, she'll leave me again. This man is not alright, yelled out another soldier. Take him to the infirmary immediately. No! cried out Dan, who then, with strength beyond his own, forced off the three soldiers holding him down and burst out the door. The soldiers chased after him, panting in the freezing cold air as Dan slowly disappeared into the fog. Dan! No! The cries for him to stop were hopeless, as they followed the sound of his footsteps for what felt like hours. Please, Dan, stop! And suddenly the footsteps were silenced. They still couldn't see him. They stepped further, quietly and slowly, as they tried to sense their friend. As they pressed forward, one man tripped, 
and in frustration he turned to see what had caused him to fall. There was the body of Dan, still and frozen on the dirt. The soldiers picked him up and carried the private back to Frogtown into the infirmary, but nothing could be done, as the young man's body was so cold that the blood had frozen within his veins. Upon further examination, the other soldiers saw the mark of a hand in his, with the imprint of a ring on the forefinger. What's wrong? Too dark for you? Not dark enough? Well, whatever your complaints are, I advise you to take them up with Connor, for he was the one to share that story on that fateful evening. As you may have guessed, not all members of the boys were thoroughly chilled by Connor's tale. With the exception of the quiet blurb in the background, we sat in silence for a moment. Of course, the moment was short-lived. That was stupid, Garland muttered before releasing his quiet hiss of a snicker at his own comment. This merited a chuckle from Gavin, you see. Garland's laughter has always been quite contagious. I raised my eyebrows as Connor gave a half-smile in response to Garland's crude rebuttal. Gavin smiled contentedly, turning his head back toward the television when something grabbed his attention. Noticing the abrupt stop of the swivel, I glanced at Gavin. He nodded at me and gestured for me to look where he was looking. I turned my head out towards the window where he had pointed his chin. Only a few feet of the sagebrush that occupied much of Garland's yard were visible. Beyond that, the fog awaited. A gray, fuzzy mist that looked as though it would suffocate anything that entered. My eyes widened. Anyone want to make a joke about pea soup here? I asked. Garland gave a pity snicker. A grin from Gavin and a smirk from Connor. I assume it was something like that at least. See, my view hadn't shifted from the fog since it first landed there. The fog shifted hypnotically, but a swirling cloud of vapor. It began to darken in an ovalish blob. I squinted. The figure slowly became more clear. Now, in order to preserve the confidentiality we created within our podcast you so avidly listen to, I'm afraid I must refer to certain people and figures using the previously established codenames. I'm sure you'll catch up. You seem to be following along just nicely thus far. As I would have sworn to you or anyone else in that moment, Operation Citadel stood out there, just on the cusp of the fog. I blinked, and just as soon as she had appeared, she vanished. I flipped back around on the couch. Fellas, I think I'm going nuts. I was cut off as the lights flickered for a moment, then blinked out. The TV did the same. A power outage. Connor began to yell in a mock Darth Vader voice. No. As Gerlin sighed impatiently. Gavin and I turned to look out the window again, sure that the fog had something to do with the power. Is there a breaker box or something? I asked. Gerlin nodded. Yeah, but we gotta split up to find it. What is it? Not a fan of my convenient plot device, as you put it? Well, I'm afraid you'll just have to cope. After all, that's exactly how it happened. In any case, I believe it would be best for the rest of the story to be told uninterrupted. Don't you? And so, me and the boys split up in search of Gerlin's alleged breaker box. Sliding the back door of the house open, 
Gavin stepped out into the quiet night of the backyard. He paused for a moment to admire the soft whiteness of the fog. Then he began to make a perimeter around the house. His eyes scanned up and down the side of the house. At first, he could only hear the sharp crunch of the gravel beneath his feet. But after he'd been out walking for a few minutes, the sound of his footsteps began to dim. And he knew he'd only been outside for a few minutes, but still, it seemed like an eternity. You know that feeling you get when the hairs on your neck stand up on end, and a chill runs up your spine? That sense you're being watched, that you're not alone? The hair on Gavin's neck became sharp as bristles on a brush. He stopped walking. His head whipped around and came to a stop somewhere in the fog. Hello? He called out timidly towards the dark shape not far in front of him. Gavin? Gavin almost forgot to breathe in that instant. The voice was jarring, yet warm and familiar. He blinked, rubbed his eyes. He still couldn't make out the figure before him. He stepped closer to her, trying to identify the holder of the voice. As he stepped closer, however, she moved farther away. Some quiet noise in the back of his head warned him, yelled at him. But still he moved forward, his need for seeing this woman silencing the voice in his head. The figure began to move away more and more quickly, and Gavin adjusted his face accordingly. Soon, he broke into a run, Gerlin's house far behind him. Even his heavy panting grew quiet as he approached the figure. A rush of determination hit him as the figure grew closer and closer. He stretched out his hand, almost able to grab the arm of the figure, when it vanished. Gavin slowed to a stop, turning his head around rapidly in search of the figure. The only thing he was able to identify about his surroundings was the highway at his feet. The void that had surrounded his ears before slowly began to fill, and his environment began to regain its sound, just as two headlights rushed towards him. Garland hadn't given any information regarding the location of the breaker box, so I began to comb the interior. So as to maintain a sense of respectful boundaries, I did my best to avoid searching the various bedrooms of the house. Unfortunately, this left only the living room and the bathrooms to search. I doubted the control panel would be in any of the bathrooms, so I opted to look in the living room first. Like much of the rest of the house, the living room was considerably vast. Nothing, the piano, couches, or shelving, detracted from a strange feeling of emptiness that seemed, ironically, to fill the room. I shook myself out of the odd haze my mind was in. Looking around, I noticed a room nobody else had thought to check. The office. Clearly there was no breaker box in the living room, so I entered the office. A chill ran through me as I felt a sense of instant regret. Something else was in the room with me. As I quickly turned to leave the office, the door swung shut in front of me. I felt an involuntary gasp escape my mouth. Grabbing the handle, I pushed against the door. No use. I slowly turned. Operation Citadel stood there silently, 
eyes piercing through me. Another chill hit me. Operation Citadel smiled mockingly and shook her head, then vanished. Now, the power was already out, so I'd thought the house couldn't get any darker. I was wrong. Pitch darkness rushed in towards me. The temperature of the entire room dropped several degrees. I began to shiver. I put my hands out in front of me to search for the door. I could feel my arms push through the cold air, but they were completely invisible in the enveloping black. That's when the silence hit. The room's temperature dropped again just as I began to hear my own accelerating heart rate. I heard something else too. Footsteps coming from what I assumed was the other side of the office door. I opened my mouth out of instinct to yell, to scream, but no sound escaped. All I could do was listen. Right between the office and the living room was Gerlin's front door. The footsteps moved towards that front door, and I could hear the door itself creak open as the owner of the footsteps left the house. Silence for a moment, and then another set of footsteps exited the building. And then another. More silence. Putting my ear to the office door, I could barely hear one more person walk from down the hall, approach the front door, but then stop just in front of my door. I held my breath, listening to the other side of the door. One step closer. Two steps closer. Three steps closer. And then a half step to a stop. They were now so close to me that they may well have been pressing their ear to the door, listening back. I heard them inhale and exhale sharply, and then she began to laugh. It was a harsh, mocking laugh that ate and burned away at my insides like acid. She stopped laughing and was silent again. She stepped away from the office door and walked out of the building, opening and closing the front door. The ensuing silence was deafening. I sat there in the dark silence for minutes, hours, days, waiting for someone to find me, to release me from my prison. But nobody came. Most of the boys had gone upstairs to search for the solution to the power outage, but Connor stayed in the basement, thinking it a logical place for the breaker box to be hidden. Entering the storage area, Gerlin's gun vault caught his eye. Mind you, it wasn't Gerlin's alone, as it belonged to his family. Immediately as Connor stepped into the vault, he felt a chill that gave him goosebumps. He plans to find the breaker box as quickly as possible so they could get the search over with. Connor searched the shelves within the vault, some stocked with ammunition, some with blankets, and some with soft drinks. He found no breaker box, however. Sighing to himself, he turns to walk out of the vault. He felt a tug at the back of his shirt. Jolting a little, Connor whipped back around. His shirt had gotten caught on the corner of one of the shelves. He exhaled, releasing his shirt from the corner's grip. For some reason, this whole situation had made him a bit on edge. He turned around again to exit the vault, but was yanked back so hard he slammed into one of the shelves, knocking his head against a level. His vision grew fuzzy. 
blinking to clear his head. He could just make a figure out in front of him. The figure said something in a feminine voice that was all too familiar to Connor before slowly approaching him. She grabbed both of his hands tightly, moving closer. Shaking his head roughly, Connor tried to pull his hands away from the woman's icy grip, but she held tighter, her hands now clutching Connor's shoulders. No, Connor said groggily. Another figure appeared in the room alongside the woman, and then another. Both approached Connor in the same slow way the first woman did, each grabbing hold of one of his arms so tightly that they began to cut off his circulation. He tried to the best of his ability to shake them off to escape, but they only clutched him tighter. The woman in the middle looked into Connor's eyes as she moved her hands up to his neck and squeezed. Connor gasped, fighting for air. His arms flexed and struggled. His vision grew dark. The figure stood above him, smiling. Everything went to black as he suffocated. Gerlin had suggested the boys split up for one express purpose. He was hungry. Heading towards the kitchen, Gerlin combed the cupboards and pantries in search of not the breaker box, but of an adequate snack. At last, his eyes rested upon a near full box of Oreos. He entered the walk-in pantry and grabbed it, eagerly opening the seal. He took only one step out before he stopped abruptly. The door opposite the pantry leading into the garage was wide open. Gerlin put the cookie he'd been holding to his lips down. He turned his head side to side to see if anyone was around, and then timidly stepped inside the three-car garage. Just as he did, the tip of a gray cloak ducked behind his parked SUV. Gerlin popped the Oreo into his mouth and chewed nervously. He slowly approached the SUV, worried about what he might find on the other side. As he peeked out past the far side of the vehicle, he again saw the edge of the cloak, this time whispering out the door leading to the side of the house. Looking to get to the bottom of this strange occurrence, Gerlin yanked the door open, only to find nothing on the other side, except for the white fog. He stood there for a moment, mystified by it, and then shrugged and turned back. He stopped. Standing in front of him there, in the doorway, was the woman he'd been wanting for years. She was dressed in a wispy gray cloak. She said nothing as she pushed Gerlin with the palm of her hand. He braced himself in midair, expecting to hit the ground, but he only fell, and fell, and fell, down into a bottomless pit absent of light and of hope. The woman looked down at him from the doorway before re-entering the garage, closing the door behind her. Well, I'm afraid this brings our tale to an end. You really should return to your home or wherever it is you've come from. Excuse me? You mean you're not satisfied with the ending of the story? Well, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you want me to say here. That, that was the way it happened, after all. Alright, alright, fine. 
If it'll stop your pestering, I'll give that ending a reprise. Garlin looked around for something, anything to grab onto. Something that could stop his fall. As he craned his neck downward, he caught a glimpse of that something. Just seeing it filled his heart with hope. He moved in the air towards it, putting all his weight and energy into getting to that symbol of hope. He fell towards it and finally grabbed it with all his might as he landed harshly in the kitchen. He gasped, his lungs filling with air and his mind filling with relief. There was no time to catch his breath fully, however. He heard a thud coming from downstairs, from what he thought was the gun vault. Rushing down into the basement, Garland could hear someone struggling for air. He burst into the gun vault where Connor lay, consciousness fading. Garland didn't hesitate to deliver a harsh slap to Connor's face, widening his eyes and causing him to gasp for air. They gave each other a confused look. Garland, I, I saw... No time. I think the other two might be in trouble. Garland cut Connor off as he picked him up from the ground. Connor rubbed his neck, panting. And then he looked at Garland and nodded. Garland and Connor pried open the door to the office where I sat, on the floor, staring at the wall. Light flooded into my vision, and I rushed towards it, clutching the boys in a tight embrace. I inhaled sharply, holding back tears. Garland and Connor looked at each other, Garland giving me a light pat on my head. Come on, buddy. We still gotta find Gavin, he said in an uncharacteristically gentle voice. I saw... I heard... I know. But we gotta find Gavin. We ran outside into the cold. The fog had somewhat cleared, dissipating into the night. Gavin stood on the road, 20 yards from the house, staring at the car rushing towards him. He wasn't moving. In desperation and in a last-ditch effort, we in unison shouted, Gavin! He blinked and turned towards us, and then back at the car as he realized the situation he was in. Gavin leaped from the road into the sagebrush in Garland's yard, the car just missing him by a foot or two. He got up, dusting himself off, still blinking hard. Connor, Garland, and I sprinted towards him in a flurry. You alright? Connor asked in between intakes of breath. Gavin smiled weakly and nodded. He looked back to the road, sadly. I put my hand on his shoulder. Let's get out of here, bro. It was mostly due to my moving away, but we haven't visited Gerland's house often since then. We didn't speak much of that night afterward, and we didn't need to. Come to think of it, we did speak of it once. I asked Gerland what gave him so much hope and determination so as to escape the literal pit of despair, when none of us could escape ours. He said nothing, however. He only smiled and put an Oreo in his mouth. There, are you happy now? Don't shake your head at me, I, I worked hard on that ending. Where are you going? Aren't you going to at least give me your name? You, 
better listen to the Me and the Boys podcast season finale, streaming this Saturday.